0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we celebrate the historic victory for Amazon workers in Staten Island who voted on April 1st to form the first U.S. Amazon union, winning against the retailing giant whose profits have skyrocketed during the pandemic. John Logan, labor historian and expert on the anti-union industry, joins us to analyze the scope of this victory, the challenges to come, and how this changes everything. We then turn to less good news. The ongoing horrific war Russia is waging in Ukraine. Ilya Budrytskis, author and activist joins us to discuss the state of the war nearly 40 days in, which Putin is losing politically and militarily. We get Ilya's understanding of Putin's battle to control the minds of Russians at home, closing all independent media, pushing a false narrative, imposing draconian penalties for even calling this a war. Ilya sees these as moves toward establishing a real dictatorship, bloody and irrational, and one that depends on economic, political, social, and now even psychological. Control over the population. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and I'm very pleased to have John Logan back with us. This is a very good occasion. I'm going to tell you why. We're marking an historic victory. Amazon workers in Staten Island, New York voted to unionize on Friday, April 1st. This is no April Fool's Day news. This is the first successful organizing effort in the United States to unionize Amazon, the retail giant that employs more than a million workers in the United States. And that doesn't count all of the contract drivers and others that it employs. So the warehouse workers in Staten Island Voted 2,654 to 2,131 in favor of unionizing out of, and we'll ask John about this, 8,325 eligible workers. So 55% for, 44% against, making it literally impossible to contest. The result, although there are some ballots to be challenged, they are not enough to really change the outcome. And Chris Smalls, the Amazon worker who was fired for pressing for health and safety protocols during the pandemic, when all of these workers were deemed essential workers, has been leading this fight to unionize in Staten Island. And fittingly, he's the president of the new ALU or Amazon Labor Union. There's a great picture or meme that's circulating on social media, and it has a picture of Chris Small saying, We want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space because while he was up there, we were organizing a union. So the vote count also began on the same day of the rerun election in Bessemer, Alabama, which John and I talked about on this show several times, and I wanted to bring him back to talk about that. In that election, the Retail Workers Union, the RU, it's actually the RWDSU, but we call it the RU, uh, made up significant ground in this new redo. And we're going to get John's latest on where that stands, but it's apparently too close to call and a surprise for all of those who were just certain that Amazon would prevail and the workers would lose. So John is with us to discuss the union victory and what it portends. And he's also quoted in the LA Times story on Saturday. And he says it's about the union win as a potential tipping point two years into a pandemic that has shifted the landscape. And John says, we knew that unions were having a moment, but this is much bigger. There's no bigger prize than organizing Amazon. So that's a very good place to begin, John. Welcome back to the program. And let me just tell the listeners your your bona fides Uh, John is a PhD in labor history from the University of California, Davis. He's an expert on the anti-union industry, and we should definitely touch on that, and anti-union legislation in the United States. And he's professor and chair of labor and employment studies at San Francisco State University. He's got a lot more behind him, but right now, there's barely an article you can read that doesn't quote John Logan. So we're very fortunate to have him with us, John. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So let's maybe just start with what happened in Staten Island, how you account for it, and what's changed.
1: Yeah, I mean, Staten Island, as you said in the introduction, is really a staggering result. I mean, I don't think anyone expected either of the unions to win the election, but probably Amazon Labor Union even less than the RWDSU in Alabama. And not only did they win, in a warehouse with, as you said, over 8,000 employees. I mean, this is just absolutely massive by the standards of NLRB elections. And unions never win in bargaining units this large. If you look It's at even 10, bigger
0: than in Bessemer, isn't
1: it? Even bigger, Yep, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and Bessemer is huge. It was like 61, 75. I mean, it was bigger this time than it was last time in Bessemer. But, you know, if you look at the NLRB statistics on union election victories, the median size of bargaining unit that unions win is like between 20 and 40 employees. And then you go up to hundreds, and there are very few union victories. And then you go up to thousands, and they're almost zero I mean, you have to go back years and years and years to find just a handful of union victories. I mean, you know people still talk about Smithfield, North Carolina, in December two thousand eight, which was about five to six thousand workers. That was after a sixteen year campaign that they won that in December, but you know that 's how far back you have to go to find a comparable campaign so I mean this is just a staggering win. For a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, everyone is quite rightly focusing on the independent Amazon Labour Union. The fact that they did this without super experienced organisers or lawyers, they had a GoFundMe page to raise money for the campaign. A lot of their tactics, we, I mean, we don't know everything that went on, were probably not conventional. I mean, they filed for an election with 30% the bargaining unit you know, traditional wisdom always sort of says you've got to have like 70 or 80% because of so much attrition during these anti-union campaigns. I should say that I think now people are still realizing it, that that doesn't really matter at Amazon because the turnover is so high. Even if you got like 70 to 80%, half of those people are not even going to be there by the time of the election comes around. So I think Amazon Labour Union, Chris Smalls, to their great credit, Probably realized that he said all we need to do is trigger an election because it just starts from that point on, and if we have arguments that resonate with the workers and they did, and as you said it 's also unimaginable to me not only the Amazon labor union would have won, but almost any union would have won at Amazon in the context of a traditional NLRB election two or three years ago. But now we're in a different moment. And, you know, I think after two years of working through the pandemic, a lot of these frontline workers at Amazon, at Starbucks, at a variety of other places, feel that they have not been rewarded adequately, feel that they've not been treated with respect. And again, you know, Chris Smalls, the other... You know, They had a variety of charismatic leaders in that union, and they could say with a great deal of authenticity, we're just like you. We've worked in that warehouse. We know what it's like to be treated disrespectfully by Amazon in that warehouse. And if you join us, we will fight for you. We will make sure you get respect. We will make sure you get fair treatment. But that was a message that really, really resonated very strongly. You know, in addition to all of the great grassroots organizing they did, they had a very clear message that workers, you know, after two years of the pandemic, I think we're really willing to hear and to listen to. And it's interesting, you were just very quickly, sorry, I didn't mean to ramble on, ramble on. Amazon fought a very aggressive anti-union campaign, both at Staten Island and at Bessemer. But the interesting thing is that Amazon's tactics and its messaging, which have been working for years in crushing unions, not just for Amazon, but for all of these other corporations too. But Amazon has crushed every union campaign, you know, so far. But so the captive audience meetings, I'm not saying they're not effective. They clearly are. But you had time after time at both Bessemer and particularly Staten Island, workers challenging the consultants at captive meetings. And then the sort of like tired old anti-union arguments that they always bring up. The union is an external third party. You know, we don't want to introduce this outside argument. And so the workers are saying, no we're the Amazon Labour Union. And I think, you know, that particular argument, which, as you know, is always plays a so central role in these anti-union campaigns, is always one of the consultants' talking points. It rang particularly hollow in this campaign, because, you know, who are you talking to here? This is the Amazon Labour Union founded a couple of years ago by workers who were fired for protesting inadequate COVID safety precautions. And I think, you know, there's a similar dynamic as Starbucks too, because even though there is a union involved there, it's very much a worker-led, self-organizing campaign, same as it was, I think, to a large extent in Staten Island. And so those workers at Starbucks very much feel that they are Starbucks Workers United. It's not an external entity. It's certainly not a business that's only interested in their juice money. They're the union.
0: So much for me to ask you out of what you have just said, John. I was going to ask, and I think you more or less touched on it, was there a shift in organizing tactics or Mm -hmm. did this victory, in your view, reflect the broader pro-union sentiment that we're seeing? And especially since the pandemic and a recognition, even by the workers themselves, that they are essential workers and that that emboldened them in some ways to take advantage of this public support yeah. to move forward. And, you know, in describing on the one hand, Amazon, the giant retailer in workplaces, as you say, with more than 8,000, 9,000 members and compare it to you know, Starbucks, Starbucks, which you yeah. brought up. And that sort of fits the pattern of the successful elections you mentioned by the NLRB of 20 yeah. to 40. Well, Starbucks shops will have 12 to 25 yeah. workers in them. But and there you're also seeing a big victory. So I guess I just want you to continue on that vein. Right. and. You know, in terms of the obstacles that they faced, and I don't know if we want to compare them, you know, in every aspect here, but let's hear it.
1: Well, there is another comparison, which we were talking about earlier, which I, I know is something you know about already. But in both cases, you know obviously Starbucks is overwhelmingly young workers, you know, most of them under thirty years of age. and Amazon is you know much more diverse because, as you said, it has a million workers. they're every kind of person, age, race, every demographic you can think of. but at Staten Island, and you know at Bessemer too, but you know very much at Staten Island. There was very much, and I'm not saying that this is, you know, has to be the case everywhere, this pattern will even be repl- replicated everywhere, but there was a very dedicated, fearless group of young workers, many of whom identify as socialists some of them as communists, you know, all sorts of things. There's an interesting article in Labour Notes that came out last night. You might have seen the interviews, a lot of the workers. One of them was talking about the the closest thing they had to a how-to manual was something by William Z. Foster. You know, I mean, when's the last time you heard (laughs) that name come up in a recent organizing campaign? But again, at Starbucks, too, as you know, I mean, we have a lot of young workers who are politically conscious, who are... Engaged with unions, engaged with politics, who are influenced by Bernie, or influenced by Black Lives Matter, who are DSA, who are a variety of things. And clearly it's spread, you know, you don't get as many votes in the Amazon warehouse or even be as successful at Starbucks if that's the only people. But those are the ones who are very much, you know, leading the organizing, are really committed, and they're Very, very smart and savvy. They are able to explain to their fellow workers. They will try to tell you this BS about the union being a business, it's only interested in your Jews' money. They will give you this line about the union's an external third party that has this complicated constitution that you're going to be held, you know, responsible for all of those rules, that the union might force you out on strike. And all of this nonsense, they're telling people, no, you're the union. We are the union. We will be calling the shots. We'll be making the decisions. And so we know from Starbucks, from Amazon, from REI, from the online media campaigns, from all of these campaigns, it is these sort of relatively fearless young workers who have been taking the lead. And clearly, we need to spread beyond that. And, you know, and I think there's a very good chance that it will. But it is a similarity, I think, you know, with a lot of the campaigns. And as I said, you know, if you read some of the, I mean, not just the Labour Notes piece, but, you know, I mean, I think I read 50 pieces on the campaign (laughs) yesterday. And if you look at the profiles of the workers who were most active in the campaign, and who did such a fantastic job of organising within their departments, within their 50 or 100 people who they work closest with, a lot of them are already very politically engaged, and were absolutely committed to this organising campaign pain. So that doesn't mean, though, I should say, I don't think that Staten Island is is exceptional. I don't think that, you know, you can say, okay, you can organize Amazon at Staten Island, but you you can't replicate that model anywhere else. Sure, it will be different in different places. You know, every place has unique characteristics. But I don't think there's any reason that the Amazon Labor Union with all of the challenges that it faced, with the lack of money, with the lack of experience, with the lack of it, every you know, backing that not only was it successful, but it won by a very significant majority. And, you know, Amazon are gonna challenge it. You know, we can talk about that if you want. Yeah, I do want but there's no reason why I don't think it can be successful in Sacramento or Chicago or Los Angeles or wherever it is.
0: I was just thinking as you were speaking, John Logan, about we talked, I think, about striketober, which was yeah. in October. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, countrywide. So the kind of things that you're describing are not just in urban progressive centers, no. but all over the U.S. Yeah. Because everybody is equally affected by, let's call it neoliberal orga- labor yeah. conditions. And then this pandemic, as we all know, did cause a rethink for a lot of mm-hmm. people about their health, their lives, their future, yep. and all of those things. But I want to go back now because there's a lot of issues and I don't know how much time we'll have to discuss them, but the fact that both in Starbucks and at this Amazon These were new small unions. This is not the UFCW, and it's not even the RU, which is small comparative to what most of us thought would be required to organize huge workplaces like Amazon in terms of resources and organizers. But you were kind of talking about how this was an advantage and how they kind of broke the rules and didn't have the handbook in a way. And, you know, if you think back to, uh, I used to have a bumper sticker that said something like uh, wildcat strikes, thank them for the eight hour day. You know, it's Mm non-sanctioned radical actions by workers that often brings the best gains. So maybe you could just address this problem and then we can go on to the challenge by what we think will happen with the NLRB and Amazon.
1: Yeah, you're very quickly, first of all, I mean, your point is absolutely right. This is not just New York. This is not just the sort of global cities and, you know, cosmopolitan I mean, if you look at Starbucks, they've now won two stores in Mesa, Arizona. They had a great victory in Knoxville, Tennessee. We were talking about one of the leaders of the entire campaign, Maggie Carter, who's this fantastic worker organizer, comes out of Knoxville. I mean, Tennessee is not exactly a union stronghold, but. As you were saying, Amazon Labour Union, yeah, in some ways, they don't have the baggage. And I don't mean baggage in that. I mean it only in a negative sense in the way that it's used during anti-union campaigns. You know, those consultants, as you know, will sort of say, this is UFCW. This is Teamsters. Look at the bad stuff that's happened in the past, or look at the bad contracts they have negotiated. Now, all of it is out of context. All of it's a complete misrepresentation. A lot of it's a complete fabrication. But nevertheless, you know, they weren't able to do that with the Amazon Labor Union. The Amazon Labor Union did have advisors. I know, you know, Gene Bruskin, who's a very veteran organizer with UFCW and others, you know, was always on call to them on organizing tactics but they really did do it themselves i mean this was a group of young workers it was a grassroots diy worker-led self-work you know whatever i mean they're not cliches but you know whatever term you want to use to describe it you know i think is appropriate you know when it comes to both staten island and to a large extent to starbucks too because again you know Starbucks won an important victory on Friday at the uh, New York City Roastery. There's only three roasteries in the country. That was one of them. They're also probably going to win a roastery in Seattle. They have filed at over 170 stores now nationwide. Most of those stores have never seen a professional union organizer. That's not why it's happening. It's kind of happening because, well, everyone else is doing it. And they're taking inspiration from the workers in Buffalo and the workers in Knoxville and the workers in Mesa. I mean, in some ways, it's a similar dynamic. You know, and I, I don't want to make far-fetched comparisons, but you know, if you think about the General Motors Flint sit-down strike in December thirty-six, January thirty-seven, which spread very rapidly, certainly in the Upper Midwest and you know to the East Coast, a little bit out west, but you know, it spread because people were reading about it in papers, they were seeing about it in pathé newsreels, they were hearing about it from their families, from their friends, and they were inspired, you know, and they thought. They can do that. We can do that. If other people are doing it, we should be doing it too. And I do think it will take this type of dynamic to really, there's just like not enough unions, not enough organizers, not enough money to rebuild the labor movement workplace by workplace. It's going to require these campaigns that really, you know, just capture the imagination and sort of take off like wildfire. And we also need those campaigns if we're ever to get labor law reform, because yeah. those are the campaigns that force people to be engaged with the issues, to take notice, to understand the brutality of you new know, Amazon's anti-union campaign, to see that you know $15 an hour workers are being forced on threat of dismissal. By multi-billion dollar corporations to attend anti-union propaganda sessions conducted by consultants who are paid thousands and thousands of dollars a day right. you know there are very few people who would hear that and say that sounds fair I, I think that should be allowed you're know, quite the opposite you know most people are going to have a repulsion to hearing it you know this I think that shouldn't be and so
0: But one of the things that you're describing, John, and I think it's extremely important, and that is that you said that the other unions, the UFCW, was on call and advising. So it seems like, you know, some of the, I mean, we don't know officially. An organizer
1: from, yes, yeah, yeah. But I was thinking
0: in terms of the sectoralism of the labor movement, and you never got, let's say, the AFL-CIO making one campaign, unionize Amazon, unionize Walmart, you yeah. know it's always been left to individual unions with varying resources, and it's almost you know so are you seeing a bit of a change there? Is this a generational change, and well, is this well, how do you see this?
1: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean I think you know it's a cliche to say that Amazon is bigger than any one single union, but it's true it it operates in like multiple different sectors of the economy, as you said officially the second largest private sector employer in the country, but we know that all of the freelancers, all of the contract workers, Amazon is just so dominant. So it's clearly beyond the ability of one union to take on Amazon. But you know, even beyond that, you know, as I say, I, I think this sort of self-organization and these unconventional organizing campaigns are going to become more of a feature of not just organizing Amazon, but at other places, you know, we already see it at Amazon Fresh, you know, with Amazon Workers United. We see it with Amazonians United in you know, Chicago and New York and D.C., et cetera, et cetera. So the question for the labor movement, the traditional labor movement as a whole, is what can it do that would facilitate this type of activity to help it to spread and to offer it the kind of guidance that it needs? I mean, workers by themselves, you know, don't know how to file for NLRB elections and they probably need legal help and doing things like that, they don't necessarily know like what kind of demands should go into sort of first contract negotiations and things like that. So, you know, there are things that the leadership of the AFL and the leadership of the big unions could be doing that would help encourage and facilitate this process of self-organization that I think is an absolutely essential. If we ever are going to have union revitalization, I think, you know, you really, really need to have that. You know, you can't do it campaigns that take 16 years, you know, even if everything went exactly to plan, it would take us a 100 years to get back to like 15 or 20% union density. You know, you need to have these campaigns and people have a different relationship with Amazon and Starbucks, you know, a much more direct relationship than the public ever did with General Motors or Ford in the 30s and 40s. And so these companies are subjected to the public gaze in a way that is is highly unusual. And so people are paying attention to what's going on. This was on also there.
0: the case, by the way, with the UPS workers back yeah. in the 90s that yeah. people know their drivers or they yeah. meet them. And so there's more sympathy. So yeah. we've almost run out of time, yeah, sure. uh, John, and I didn't get to some of the issues about. Bessemer. But you did mention, and I think we have to say it, the demands for $30 an hour and increased time and paid vacation and all that paid breaks during the day and many other really progressive demands. Were those like key for organizing? And do you think that they're possible? And what challenge do you think Amazon will mount? Because Amazon, you know, has this work culture that seems like they're not interested in changing it.
1: Right. Sure, sure. Well, so first, I mean, as your question implies, I mean, I talked about how the experience of working through the pandemic and feeling you're not adequately rewarded and you're not being treated with respect. But as you know, I mean, Amazon and companies like Amazon have actually... Have, very clearly cleaned up during the pandemic. I mean, their profits have skyrocketed. So, you know, some people might sort of think $30 an hour, you know, when you're currently getting 16, 17 bucks an hour. I mean, that sounds kind of like, you know, fanciful, but there's no question Amazon can afford to pay, you know, I mean, it could afford to give those raises only on the basis of the additional profits that it's made during the pandemic. So I think it's only right that they should demand as much as possible and you know I've no doubt, doubt that they will probably be considering direct action and all sorts of things to back up those demands. but as you said Amazon is not interested in changing its model is based on algorithmic management treating workers as disposable relatively low wages and having no independent voice at the workplace and that's the way it wants to keep it and it will do everything and it possibly can to drag out bargaining To engage in hard bargaining, but it will be subject again, you know, to an unusual degree of scrutiny by both the NLRB and by politicians, and also by the public. And so I think it will be difficult for Amazon, and I think it's already finding that out, that all sorts of kinds of behavior, many times unlawful but previously has gotten a free pass on that it's been able to violate workers' rights with impunity. Uh, The Biden NLRB, to its great credit within its powers, is trying to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. It's trying to make sure that workers at Amazon and at Starbucks who want to choose a union get a free choice as the law requires. And Amazon, you know, they've filed a complaint against the election, which actually implies that can file complaints on the basis of violations of the law, but also unacceptable conduct which can be either in the part of the union or in the part of third parties on behalf of the union. And it's actually the behaviour of the NLRB that Amazon is complaining about in addition to complaining about the behaviour of the union. Now, of course, it's actually relatively rare for either the board or the courts to overturn an election result because unions, and particularly the Amazon Labour Union, clearly does not have the same any course of power over the employees in the way that Amazon does now you can file objections against third party behavior saying that it is you know, affected the outcome of the election result. If you remember, the UAW did this against Volkswagen, I think it was like, was it 2013, 2014? Yeah. But that was very different. There, you had a Republican governor who threatened to remove Volkswagen state subsidies that they had been granted, in which the jobs were dependent upon, if the union came into that plant. And even then, the UAW was unsuccessful, you know, in making the complaint. So Amazon, I mean, it's just desperation. It's just time wasting. It's just trying to delay and delay and delay because this is what these firms do. So it's very important that it doesn't succeed in doing that because instead, the two big arguments Amazon's anti-union campaign are really based on fear and futility. Fear of retaliation, of losing one's jobs, of warehouses, of being closed, whatever it is, and futility that nothing will ever change. You can't win against Amazon. Amazon will never give up. It will just go on and on and on. And I got to say, like, you know, after yesterday, I think even before yesterday, you saw during the campaign. Fear is still real, but some of the fear has been diminished. And I think particularly amongst these young workers who are activists, they have worked through a deadly pandemic for two years. They're not as fearful as captive audience meetings, maybe, as they used to be. Captive audience meetings should still not be allowed. But, you know, maybe they're just not quite as fearful uh, of Amazon as was the case before. And second, it seems... A whole lot less futile. You know, the idea that trying to organize a union Amazon is futile, it's not quite as convincing after the result yesterday. So if anyone tells them, you know, if any of the high-paid consultants tell you, you know, this is just an exercise in futility, you're never going to get what you want. You know, you can point to Staten Island. <laughs> you can point to Starbucks stores in Buffalo and in Mesa and in Knoxville and in Seattle and say... Unionization is futile. Those workers didn't think so. They took the risk. They stood up and they were successful. So I mean that's Well, awful. John,
0: we're gonna we're absolutely out of time. And I just want to say there's nothing like getting a victory under your belt to be more combative and ask for more. And yeah. so the way that you just ended it, you know, I think that is what we're gonna see more and more of. And of course, that's not to diminish the power that Amazon has, but there's also the power that workers have. So yeah. I want to thank you so much for that wonderful overview. We're still celebrating this historic victory that the Amazon workers in Staten Island successfully voted to organize a union. And it is their union, the Amazon labor union with Chris Smalls as president. And we're going to be watching this and and the Bessemer outcome of the redo as well. And John, we're going to have to talk about Starbucks next time.
1: Yeah, I'd new love battles to, I love on the horizon about Starbucks. Yeah. Yes. And, and actually, they have lots and lots of elections coming up.
0: So, yes. You know. And that one is spreading like wildfire. Yeah. And let's hope that yeah. it does throughout the labor movement. John is professor and chair of labor and employment studies at the San Francisco State University. He's the expert on union busting the industry and the legislation in the united states he watches the nlrb like a hawk you know and is the go-to person not just for me but for journalists and experts everywhere and i want to thank you so much john for joining us today thank
1: you so much for having me on i really enjoy it as always
0: me too thanks so much Mm This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and very pleased to have Ilya Budrytskis back with us. And we're going to be talking about, of course, nothing else but Russia's war on Ukraine. And we're almost 40 days into this war. This is not the shock and awe, quick, dirty war that Putin apparently believed he could wage. Instead, Ukrainian resistance and fight back has halted Russia's ability to take any major city, with the exception of Kherson. But even their resistance is making whether or not they can hold that city questionable. And Mariupol stands as an example of Russia's war conduct, raining down destruction and leveling the city with little regard for the population, and I should also say for the Russian troops, many of them are conscripts who are fighting this war. It seems like only American and Western intelligence actually believed that Putin would invade Ukraine. I thought, like so many others, in fact, everyone that I talked to, that the buildup and the massing of troops was bluster, And that something would happen just before that would prevent Putin from actually going to war. That thinking was based on a rational assessment. How could Putin embark on something so dangerous and so destructive to Russia itself, not just inviting a wider war, but in some cases, you know, destroying the Russian economy? and making it you know plunging it back to the world of the 90s essentially economically or perhaps just to the year 2000 so there's been a lot of finger pointing a lot of who's to blame and it's been kind of reflexive on the western left saying well yes it's nato and the united States' ultimate responsibility uh, but i think that that attitude doesn't give putin enough of the blame and this is his war this is a new world and this war changes the world that we're living in. So I'm very happy to have Ilya Budryanskis with us. He's the author of a brand new book just published by Verso Press called Dissidents Among Dissidents Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post Soviet Russia. That's published this year, 2022. Ilya writes regularly on politics, art, and philosophy for open democracy and other places. And he teaches at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. And we had Ilya on not all that long ago to talk, I think, about the emerging protest movement around Navalny and the continuation of protests that we have seen in Moscow since living standards began to decline and Putin cracked down on political opposition. So, Ilya, welcome to Jacobin Radio.
2: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thank you. And let me just tell the listeners, too, that on Monday, UCLA's Center for Social Theory and Comparative History is holding a panel. And Ilya will be on that panel along with Ilya Madhyev and Boris Kagolitsky and myself. And that is at 11 a.m. in California. And you can go to UCLA's Center for Social theory and comparative history to get the Zoom link to register and to listen to that panel. Okay, so um, going back then, Ilya, maybe we should talk to begin with what you think Putin's motives for this war were, and whether did you think he was going to go to war? Was this a rational decision?
2: I will say that I was one of that many who didn't believe until the last moment that this war will happen. And the reason for it was exactly uh, that you just uh, mentioned, that uh, this war had no any rational political background. This war was unprepared. The Russian society was not prepared for such a huge challenge. But afterwards, uh, I, I understood that I was wrong in many senses. I was wrong mostly in the sense that the mood of the Russian society, the change of the Putin's base, the change of the nature of the political regime could come so rapidly after the uh, beginning of this war. So it means that in the terms of internal politics, it was, in fact, uh, more prepared than I thought in that moment. But from the point of view of the political preparation in Ukraine, of course, uh, it was a total failure uh, from the beginning. And there were a lot of comments already that Putin was uh, misinformed uh, about the real uh, situation, the situation. Uh, real feelings of Ukrainians, the real condition of Ukrainian army, and so on. And uh, it seems to be true. Yes, so this war was very much unprepared. But also, in the same time, you can't say, uh, looking back retrospectively, that Putin didn't prepare this war for years, so In fact, this preparation started even from 2014, after the annexation of Crimea and start of the Russian military involvement in bus. The ideological and geopolitical base was already there when uh, Putin dubbed the uh, post-Soviet borders. He openly declared that these borders are unjust and uh, he's ready to challenge them. Uh, He also made, even eight years ago, point that Ukrainian government, after Maidan, is uh, illegal government, and it should be overthrown or changed in one way or another. So you have all these uh, things already here. So in this sense, this decision was prepared on one side, on the other, quite uh, unprepared.
0: Well, this is great. And I want to unpack many of these reasons. And I think the first thing, you know, that you talk about is that, in fact, yes, Putin was preparing the military buildup. He made speeches that so many of us thought were deranged about Russian grandeur or Russia's greatness to be restored, at least Russia's power in the world, this sort of Eurasia concept. And and as you say, these other sort of geopolitical and other things, I think in regard to 2014, it is clear since there's already been a war going on for eight years that has led to half the population of the Donbass region leaving and 14,000 people dead that, you know, Putin had eight, eight years to actually do something about that and did not. But. In terms of preparation of war, I I see that the, the Russian conscripts are using food rations that expired in 2015. So on the one hand, there was this preparation. And on the other hand, there wasn't. And I've asked others about that. And it seems that only Putin was unaware of the state of his own military, of the Russian military that, you know, there has been so much corruption that up to half of the military budget was stolen. And, you know, as we're seeing you just laid out, he certainly miscalculated in terms of the will and capacity of the Ukrainians to fight back. And he's achieved the reverse of what he wanted to because he has strengthened Ukrainian nationalism and he has strengthened or at least for now, the divisions that existed in Ukraine between East and West seem to have come together to fight Russia rather than to fight each other. I don't know if you see that as true. But I think these are some of the contradictions I'd like to unpack. And then the other one that you mentioned that is so important is this ideological mood. And I want to know what you meant by that. You said the, the mood of Russian society is different. Are you referring there to the... Success with which uh, Putin has been able to take control of the media and to build support in some kind of patriotic way for this uh, war?
2: So you can say that uh, during the last decade, and especially uh, last uh, two years, it was growth of repressive policy in uh, Russia, which uh, main aim was to, let's say, to destroy the civil society on all the levels to destroy any political opposition, to uh, criminalize and marginalize the um, alternative media. And that was definitely a part of this preparation to the coming war. Even to the beginning of this year, when Navalny and his uh, campaign was uh, totally destroyed, he found himself in uh, prison uh, when uh, many Radical left and uh, liberals were imprisoned uh, or forced to leave the country. A lot of independent media was closed. Even in this situation, much of the majority of the Russian society was not prepared uh, for the war in the sense that uh, they, even according to the opinion polls, they, they find the war in general, the very idea of the war as something bad, something unacceptable. And that is very much rooted in all this tradition of uh, gathering of the 9th of May, of the uh, suffering in the Second World War uh, and so on. But during this month... After the invasion of Ukraine, this, this situation in society changed. So, for example, according to recent polls, more than 50 percent of Russians, they strongly support a so-called special military operation in Ukraine, while some, let's say, 30 percent, they likely support it. Yeah. Uh, Is that and-
0: 30 percent you just said on top of the 50 percent? I didn't hear you. Uh,
2: yeah, also likely supported. Yeah, and only around some 10% of population strongly opposed. it. Of course, you can't trust uh, properly this uh, this opinion post because many people simply afraid to tell the truth to the pollsters and there were also a lot of um, comments from the sociologists about it. But the fact is that the atmosphere of the fear in a very atomized, and a very disorganized uh, society was created. And uh, that uh, created the main base of the, uh, let's say, public broad agreement with the war. So it's not a kind of the uh, massive uh, pro-war movement from below. It's not a kind of enthusiastic uh, support for Putin's actions in uh, Ukraine, but uh, that is the atmosphere, atmosphere of fear, which creates some kind of uh, consensus around this action, and that, uh, that is really scaring and that has uh, also raised the question about uh, future of the uh, anti war movement the future of the opposition to this regime which moving toward the kind of fascist or semi fascist condition in russia
0: let me ask you about that, Ilya Budretskis, because we were so impressed, everyone, that, you know, right away there was this very large anti-war movement developing. There were demonstrations, what, in maybe 40 different cities around Russia. And then, you know, Putin cracked down and the penalties became quite severe, 10 days, 15 days arrest. And then he moved to outlaw the word war, essentially, and say that you could only describe this as a Special military operation. And I think then in clamping down on Internet sources and closing what Moscow Rain TV and Echo uh, Moscow Radio and clamping down, even though we saw, you know, on the official media, this brave newscaster who said they're telling a lie and no war. But the question then, became, I guess the message that you have said that there's this support, but the message is very clear only speak out against this war at your own peril. And then I guess the question that I have is that, you know, this kind of control over people's thinking about the war, when the actual war is taking place so close to home, in a place where 30% of Russians have relatives, and they still haven't, you know, I guess, gotten rid of the telephone so you know, is this the case? Do you think that people are just following their leader to stay out of trouble as they did during the Stalin era and sometimes during the Brezhnev era? Or is this the case that Putin has really managed, uh, especially for those who only get their news from television, to convince them that there's no war going on? And don't they also have relatives perhaps that are fighting? In other words, isn't there some place in which, or some point at which reality intrudes and people will have to see what's really going on?
2: I think that uh, the, the, let's say, psychological element of this pro-war position is uh, is very important because uh, people, especially in this kind of very atomized uh, society, uh, atomized market society. So it's not the Soviet society mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> it's a society which was mm-hmm. uh, prepared by the decades of the neoliberal reforms and neoliberal destruction of the uh, society. <clears throat> In such a society, people are uh, fear of uh, any uncomfortable position, any position uh, which leads to some, uh, some personal political responsibility. That is very depoliticized society. yeah. And in this sense, for uh, people, it's much more comfortable psychologically to believe uh, that the government is uh, right and uh, that this situation is not <laughs> the end of the world that we uh, knew it. But uh, as a kind of episode, as a kind of uh, uh, moment, uh, that will pass away soon. Yeah, and uh, that is a very um, widely distributed feeling uh, among the Russians. Yeah, so that the sanctions, the special military operation, is just a question of uh, maybe two, three months, and then uh, life will uh, back as it was before. Yeah, and uh, Putin definitely use and play uh, plays with this kind of feeling.
0: I wanted to, you know, hone in a little bit on that, uh, Ilya, because you're talking about something that is really important in terms of the change. We'll get back to the question of whether or not this operation will come to an end in two to three months and what the end game for Putin is. But you just described, you know, this psychological control. And this is very interesting to me because we see a society, you've described it as atomized, but not in the Stalinist sense of, you know, the individualization of everyone against the state and 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 the atmosphere of fear, but now you know this is not just penalties for using the wrong words to describe the the war, and it just seems that Putin has moved from political and economic and social controls to what you just described, psychological control, and this is like an Orwellian media universe and societal universe. So. Is this his attempt at a kind of totalitarianism, capitalist, oligarchic style? How do you see this and, and, and how, uh, at, in your description of those 50% who strongly support the war, do you think, how do you read that in terms of this psychological control?
2: Uh, so you're right when you uh, mentioned this uh, informational kind of isolation which you have now in Russia. So the understanding of what is in reality this special military operation is so much far from what you can get from outside of Russia, even from Ukrainians, of course. That really sometimes sounds really unbelievable what people imagine is going on in Ukraine. And, uh, of course, this uh, display of uh, words, this change of the meanings, uh, that are also very important, that you can't use the words like uh, war, uh, you can't use uh, the, uh, the word invasion you are talking about denazification with the sense that you are, and dehumanize the uh, peoples all around the, the world uh, not just in ukraine and call them a nazis uh, which means non human Mm non-humans and that is uh, this kind of dehumanization under the name of uh, denazification is all kind of very important element of this uh, change of uh, of the meanings of the words that are uh, playing so important this control under the uh, information and uh, it's uh, really uh, fantastic how much Splits inside the families between the relatives you have uh, over this war, not just between the relatives in uh, Ukraine and Russia, but also the splits in between the generations. So you have uh, uh, thousands of stories uh, when the parents have a very strong pro-war stance while the children are against the war. And this uh, generational gap is very strong in this question. And uh, it's uh, unbelievable how many people from the older generation are uh, likely to believe uh, Putin uh, than their own sons and daughters. Mm.
0: This is really important as well. And, you know, I think if we think back to what happened to Russia since the 90s, when there was utter economic collapse and Putin came in and was quite popular because he restored order, he started paying wages instead of, you know, arrears and ended barter. And the living standard went up. And he also, of course, had his first dirty little war in Chechnya that showed his kind of war conduct. So I can see in some respects where there might be a residual affinity for the generation that remembers that so well to Putin, willing to give him the benefit of the doubt when he says this is the way it is. But I think there's more to it. And I just wondered, you know, there's been a lot of speculation on the West about Putin's own ideology. And I know you know a lot about this. And there's reference to his brain, Alexander Dugin, who represents this Eurasian mystical kind of almost outlook of the great Russia that's kind of like uh, hearkening back to the Russia of the Russian Empire uh, prior to the Russian Revolution. Maybe you could just talk a little bit About the ideological sources for Putin's thinking, whether or not you think that's actually there in the motivation or it's an after the fact justification for Putin to just hold on to and solidify his power.
2: Yeah. So the first thing that it seems that this uh, intellectual uh, influences on Putin uh, from Dugin or from uh, other uh, philosophers uh, from the past are a bit overestimated. So, for example, uh, Dugin he is quite uh, exotic and uh, controversial uh, philosopher, and for uh, for Putin or for his uh, close allies, uh, his writings are too much complicated. I will say that uh, mostly we can talk about some spirit, (laughs) some ideological spirit, some ideas which are typical uh, for the uh, Russian state apparatus and uh, especially for the Russian military, Russian secret service uh, and so on. So you can uh, say that it's a kind of style of thinking. Uh, not uh, coming from some exact number of philosophers or intellectual currents. So, definitely, Putin uh, used a lot uh, of quotations from different thinkers like Ivan Aliin, one of the ideologists of the white uh, immigration after the Civil War in Russia. <laughs> but uh, his ideological messages, like his famous speech in the beginning of the Russian invasion to Ukraine is kind of uh, eclectic summary of the ideas coming from, uh, let's say, imperialist conservative tradition of Russian uh, empire, of Russian uh, thought of the 19th century, some uh, kind of sentiments uh, from the Cold War period of the Soviet uh, bureaucracy and some numbers of uh, conspiracy theories around uh, the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union western influence and so on what is uh, very important in uh, this uh, kind of ideological mix that the language that he used the images, the ideas that he used is exactly what was the main way of thinking of imperialism of the beginning of 20th century. So the idea that you have a high cultures, you have a true uh, civilizations that are just a few. Yeah, like for now, it uh, seems to be United States, Russia, China, maybe Germany, and that's all. And all the other countries, they are not uh, subjects of history, but they are just objects, objects of someone's interests, of someone's spheres of influence. Yeah, mm. And that's why Ukraine is not a real state. It is not a real subject. Uh, such countries as uh, Ukraine or uh, Poland or uh, Lithuania or any small nation for Putin couldn't have any their own national interests, uh, their own security concerns, because they are not the subjects of the international politics. And that is kind of way of thinking that is very deeply rooted in the various structures of imperialism, not just Russian imperialism, but also American imperialism, for example. But the main problem of Putin is that uh, he not just uh, think in this way, but express his thoughts in this way. Yeah. And uh, the very language of, of imperialism for contemporary imperialism is sounds too archaic. So he can't speak in this language with Joe Biden, for example, or with the leadership of the European Union. And that's why he believes that from the side of the West, this is just a hypocrisy that they they have the same way of thinking, but they're not ready to talk about this uh, in a direct way.
0: There's probably some truth to some of that in terms of Let's say perhaps even Biden, you know, at the very beginning of the war in Iraq came up with this plan to partition Iraq in three different places. And, you know, at the time I kept thinking, well, it's unbelievable that somebody in the U.S. who knows nothing about Iraq will come up with a solution that has without allowing any of Iraqis to determine for themselves what they want. And this is, you know, something that I just wanted to bring up, because in almost all of the things that I'm reading about Ukraine today and about Russia and about possible solutions, including even a recent one by Jeffrey Sachs, uh, there's this discussion of how the end game will necessarily involve the partition of Ukraine and that the Donbass will either be independent or reincorporated into Russia. The question of Crimea still comes up. And in all of these, let's call them prescriptions for how this war could end, There's no thinker that says, well, perhaps this should be left a referenda inside Crimea, inside Donbass, inside Ukraine, and even inside Russia, perhaps. You know, there's this notion that the people are absent. That's really what I'm trying to say. So I'd like to hear your comments on that. And also because you mentioned about Putin's speeches that talk about Ukraine as a kind of fictional place that Ukrainians and Russians are the same, and yet if that's the case, then why is he slaughtering them and destroying their cities? And there seems to be so many contradictions. Maybe you can help us unpack them.
2: Yeah. So uh, firstly about the, what is Putin's plan for Ukraine? So we see that during these months, uh, probably this plans already changed. Yes, because the, the initial plan definitely was the regime uh, change in, uh, in Kyiv and installation in Ukraine, some kind of regime, which is close to, I don't know, Lukashenko's regime in, in Belarus. So this plan uh, definitely failed. For now, uh, the Russian troops uh, started to move uh, towards Donbass, and it seems that the main front line will be uh, there. But uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, Putin's uh, goal here will limit it to Donbass. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because Donbass for uh, for now is totally destroyed area. And uh, it needs uh, a lot of investments uh, to somehow rebuild it. And uh, it seems that that is definitely not the interest and not the scale of ambitions of uh, Putin's Russia for the moment, so if I could just
0: inter interrupt for one second so the listeners know the Donbass used to be the industrial powerhouse, heavy industry, coal, and a russian speaking area so But now, I wonder you know I want you to continue, but this as you say this this area has been destroyed economically, and then it's even questionable about whether coal will be revived, you know in this era of climate catastrophe
2: yeah so it's it's a complicated question because uh, the coal uh, somehow uh, started to grow by prices and it became uh, in some strange way uh, kind of more profitable than, than it was and it's very true for example for the for the mines of uh, Kuzbos, you know another important mine area in in siberia it's, it's Russian area. So that is a very complicated question, but definitely uh, that is not the aim of this uh, war for Putin. So he he probably wants to use Donbass as an instrument to dub the Ukrainian sovereignty, to dub the right of Ukraine to join any military and political alliances. And uh, if uh, he was failed uh, to invade uh, Kyiv and uh, change the regime there, uh, so he uh, probably will use the part of Ukraine under the uh, Russian control to froze uh, any possible affiliations uh, of Ukraine with, uh, with Western uh, powerful uh, structures. But, uh, you know, it, it was a very interesting point that you said that Biden didn't uh, have uh, any knowledge about Iraq yeah but what is uh, really strange that <laughs> it seems that Putin had uh, limited knowledge about Ukraine, which is uh, much more uh, strange <laughs> for the Russian politician than for American to have uh, <laughs> uh, limited knowledge about the uh, Middle East yeah and uh, the idea that Ukrainian national uh, feelings that the existence of Ukrainian language is just an uh, ideology. Yes yeah, so Putin believes that it's a kind of false consciousness false consciousness uh, which was uh, installed uh, firstly by Bolsheviks and then uh, by the by the west, yeah so that was his main uh, kind of misunderstanding of the most neighboring country to Russia with uh, such a great number of family ties and everything with Russia. It's it's even hard to imagine for now how far Ukraine became uh, from Russia also in terms of, of knowledge, yeah? Mm. what is really uh, going on in this country, about its uh, history, about its uh, language, and so on. So, uh, I mean, for Americans, maybe uh, you can uh, sell this story. The people who are speaking Russian, they're prosecuted in Ukraine uh, only for this, or uh, they uh, suffer some genocide for their Russian language. Uh, but, I mean, for Russians, for Russian soldiers who are entering to cities like Kherson or cities like Melitopol, which are totally Russian-speaking cities. Yeah, like uh, Kharkiv is totally Russian-speaking city. Uh, even Kiev is still mostly uh, Russian-speaking city. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the language question uh, in Ukraine exists, but uh, exactly not in such forms that Putin used to justify this war, because the language question is one of the main points of negotiations in between Russia and Ukraine uh, for now. And it's so far from, uh, from reality. And the Russian invasion, you know, put the Russian language at uh, such a risk In Ukraine, that it was never before and even after Maidan in 2014.
0: Just incredible that, you know, this is, of course, I think you're absolutely right to stress, Ilya, that, you know, it's even worse for Putin not to know what's going on in Ukraine. And I think, you know, if you put that together with how... He seemingly did not know the state of his own military and certainly didn't know either the mood in Ukraine or the state of the military there. Is Putin so isolated or do we know? Is he so isolated that the people around him, his inner circle, only tell him what he wants to hear? And do you see, and I know this is a very hard question to answer, um, but do you see a division within the elite or within the inner circle and how would you describe it? So two questions, both big.
2: Yeah. So uh, of course, this war and the sanctions against Russia are the biggest uh, challenge for the political system created by Putin in the last uh, 20 years. And uh, definitely there are some internal <laughs> divisions, uh, not divisions but maybe some kind of uh, reflections of what is happening on the different very different levels of russian bureaucracy and russian ruling class that, that's for sure but the main uh, question if this uh, kind of uh, divisions will lead some kind of coup d'etat and that is uh, that is not clear uh, if we look back to the histories of the coup d'etat in the soviet union the overthrow of Beria uh, after Stalin's death and Mm -hmm. then uh, overthrow of uh, Khrushchev. The people who were uh, leading this uh, coup, they were not the bravest. (laughs) They were not the most uh, talented. But their main base was the fear that each of them could become a victim, could be executed, arrested, and, and so on. And for now, we see that Putin already started to find some people who are responsible for the failures of this uh, war. So there was some information about that some very high uh, generals of the um, face bay, of the security service were uh, arrested, that the deputy um, of the chief of the National Guard was arrested, uh, and it seems that some top authorities of the Russian army, they could be next uh, victims of the purges and that create a kind of unstable situation, yeah? But also, uh, there are much more uh, other uh, different uh, contradictions in the uh, Russian political system. For example, contradictions in between the Russian regions and uh, and the Moscow, because Putin regime was all its um, time a very centralized regime, a regime which uh, never was a real federation, yeah? And all the... Uh, contradictions in the country, all the contradictions in uh, in between the Moscow and the uh, the periphery and, and especially the peripheries with the national uh, minorities, non-Russian minorities like Northern Caucasus, like Tatarstan uh, and so on, they uh, could also become a possible element of uh, destabilization. And uh, the other thing, of course, uh, that Uh, Russian society is very socially divided, and there is a lot of this uh, social anger, which was already uh, quite high before the war, and uh, probably it will uh, also grow for now. Because of the effect of the sanctions, because of such a big uh, number of uh, losses in uh, Ukraine among Russian soldiers. And of course, most of the Russian soldiers, they uh, they came from the very uh, poor uh, provincial families. So that is the other danger for this political regime.
0: These are amazing. Um, I really appreciated that, uh, Ilya, because uh, you've talked about, you know, things that Putin should have known better about. We've talked about that throughout. But, you know, remembering back even to the conditions that created the Russian Revolution, Trotsky once said that... a. Uh, that a revolution is a fight for the army and the side that gets the army wins. And in, in one way, you could say that these conscripts, you know, who didn't know they were going into war were certainly not prepared. Young kids from poor backgrounds. Now, you know, there's stories of them a month or five weeks in and eating these old rations and bursting into people's homes and demanding a hot meal. You know, just the conditions are awful and they're not welcomed as liberators. You can see them turning against Perhaps the regime. And I kind of want to just take it because we don't have a lot of time left um, to how you see, um, you know, let me just back up for a second because you've described uh, all of these economic and political and social factors, which you could say are pressures on Putin and would constitute the kind of domestic uh, rationale for what he thought would be a victorious little war. But that has been defeated. And now it looks like, you know, this war could go on for months. We have no way of knowing. And it certainly looks like the Russian military is not equipped to carry on a war of this nature without just aerial bombardment and other war crimes. So... It's a question really of what the end game is. You mentioned coup d'etat, and I've also talked about the level of social anger, the beginnings of an anti-war movement, but now that's been clamped down. So how do you see this developing? Do you think that Putin could be successful to somehow pull out and remain the kind of strong power at home that quells any form of dissent?
2: So I think, unfortunately, this uh, condition of the Russian uh, society, which is very atomized with the very poor tradition of the uh, self-organization, with the, all the political opposition uh, and independent media uh, destroyed, uh, so it makes it a kind of uh, easy victim <laughs> for Putin's power for you know some period of time, unfortunately yeah uh, but i uh, think that uh, this uh, regime can't uh, survive for years and uh, also that way how it's organized the way where all the power or the decision making uh, process concentrated in the hands of uh, one person make it definitely very weak in the historical uh, perspective
0: can you just before we end this, I mean, do you see any sort of international comparison? Putin is all often grouped together with other autocrats, but it seems like he's almost got a a kind of form of Stalinist orientation of total control over not just the map but the map of the mind. Uh, but Stalin was not successful either in that. and he had a, a you know a bigger control over the economy than let's say Putin does so you know, do you think that this, is, uh, that this is something you mentioned, he could stay in power for a while? How do you see this coming to an end?
2: So uh, the, the main uh, difference with the Stalin's regime and Putin was that Stalin was able to win the young generation for his side. And if you look back to the Second World War, From the side of the Soviet Union, when you read the diaries of the soldiers, you see how the young generation of Soviet people were full of these ideas, how they were uh, committed to the, let's say, image of the Soviet future. And if you compare it with with the Putinism, he can uh, sell only the story about great past. So there is no any image of the uh, future, and if you look even on the uh, structure of his support, so the the main hardliners in Russian society are the people after uh, let's say fifty, and that is very like clear for all the opinion polls for uh, for now, yeah. So he totally lost the younger generation, and it became more and more clear with the failure of this uh, military invasion in Ukraine.
0: So I guess that just to, to finish that, then you're saying that he might be able to prevail for a while, but not for long in the sense that he doesn't have the support of the young. And of course, the sanctions will take their toll. The military defeat, is, I think, signals also political defeat. And it kind of sounds to me like you're saying as well, Ilya Budrykis, that The ideology of pushing Russian power is almost an afterthought to justify the nature of Putin's power in Russia. So any glimmers of hope? Do you see any possibility for this anti-war movement or do you see a further brain drain as people try to leave the country?
2: Uh, for, uh, For the moment, the situation is quite depressive. So the anti-war movement that we had in the first weeks of the uh, war for now is, is crashed and very isolated from the majority of the um, Russian society. But in the historical perspective, I'm, I'm not like totally like optimistic. Yes, yeah, so I, I have some uh, pessimism of uh, mind. But I th- deeply believe that there is no any... Future for this regime that we are, uh, we're entering to its uh, agony, but this uh, agony will be very, very hard and probably quite uh, bloody. But that will be definitely end a, a light in the end of this uh, tunnel.
0: Well, I'm going to concentrate on that hope of the light at the end of the tunnel, and also to say that there are signs that Russian society will in the end, I don't know if we could say rise up, but we did see in the September 21 parliamentary elections that Putin's party lost in so many places, and yet they had to reverse you know, the results. And so that's a very good indication that that seething discontent just below the surface can't be kept below the surface unless there's some form of massive, massive repression and And I don't know if that's on the cards or not, but we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Uh, Ilya, and I'll invite you back because there's more to discuss as this war unfolds. We, in this period, did not cover everything, but at least scratched the surface. And I want to thank you so much for your thoughts. And wish you a lot of luck. Uh, Ilya Budrytskis is the author of a new book called Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia. And that just came out by Verso Press this year in 2022. And Ilya writes regularly on politics, art, and philosophy uh, for EFLUX Journal, Open Democracy, and a lot of other outlets. And he's also speaking a lot these days, so you'll probably catch him somewhere, including at UCLA on monday april 4th at 11 a.m for the center for social theory and comparative history and you can do that on zoom by uh, going to sysditch center for social theory and comparative history to find out uh, how you can register to see that panel Ilya, thank you so much for joining us today thank you thank you